0: Welcome to Tales from the Rec Room, where pants equal love. I'm your host, Succumentarian Bree Rohde, and who is with me on the line today?
1: Maggie Taylor, coming to you live from Bayport, Minnesota.
0: Uh, yes, welcome back to the show, Maggie. Last time you were on the show, you were Maggie Olson. You are now Maggie Taylor, uh, and yeah. you are also now a full-time freelance writer. That's another thing that's changed since you were last on the show.
1: Yeah, pretty much everything has changed since last time I was on the show. I was—I don't. Jeff and I were not engaged yet. I was still working for the man, and now I am married, self-employed, pregnant, living in a two-cat household. <laughs> Just every, at wipe the sleigh clean. Everything's fresh now. New name, all of it.
0: Wait, I—I I have a question because I haven't worked out the is—is d- is your baby going to be a September?
1: Uh, no, he's going to be a, a November. November okay. baby. That would have been very um thematically handy given the context of this episode but no he's a he's a november baby unless he comes really early
0: well, I hope that he comes in November in that case. Um, and yeah, yes, sure. we haven't actually said what this episode is yet. You were previously a uh, guest to talk about The Office. But today, you're coming on as a literary expert, which I'm really excited for because you are a um, not just a writer, but a voracious reader. And so we're going to talk about a book series that seemed to be a huge part of the teen girl zeitgeist when we were in high school but has since felt a little long forgotten. And that is the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants series. And as a note, writing this in the notes was so hard because here in Canada, we spell traveling with two L's and it looks really weird with one.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. I feel like when we were in our teenage years, this book was so present, the movies were so present, and now it's like this long forgotten story like no one really talks about these anymore for some reason which I'm sure we'll get into but it is kind of a a relic at this point
0: I kind of almost hope that it is because the young adult novel market is so much more crowded and saturated now which I think Mm. is generally a good thing also I was thinking about like the cast of those uh movies is such a like kind of They were like the it girls of the teen era, but they were also like they were the smart girls, it girls, you know, they really
1: were they weren't like the they weren't like the Ashley Tisdales. They weren't the Vanessa Hudgens like none of them were really the Disney stars. They kind of came up through this other path to stardom, which is kind of and I what's interesting, I didn't realize this, but all four of them went on to have starring roles in TV shows. They were in America Ferrera was in Ugly Betty, Amber Tamlin was in Joan of Arcadia, Alexis Bledel was Gilmore Girls, and Blake Lively was Gossip Girl.
0: Some of the, I mean, aside from Joan of Arcadia, which I think only lasted two seasons, those were some of, like, the best, um, like, kind of female-targeted and, like, young adult-targeted uh, shows of that that millennium. I wasn't into Gilmore Girls back then, but I'm really into Gilmore Girls now, so... <laughs> um, but Yeah, the yeah other I didn't reason... watch
1: it back then. I've tried to rewatch it, but I haven't quite gotten into it. But one of these days, I'll get caught up.
0: Well, Maggie, the other reason why I had you for this is because not only, like I said, you have a, a lot more book opinions than a lot of the other people I've had on the show, but... Um... You know, I'd say of all the previous guest hosts I've had, you lean far more toward optimism than cynicism, and I feel like that's a really essential part of these books. Like, as much as I don't think these books are puffy or fluffy, they are generally not cynical books.
1: They're not cynical, and they are, even though they deal with heavy topics, they are much lighter than a lot of the other kind of pillars of the young adult novel industry at this stage like no one is overthrowing like an oppressive regime no one is being forced to like kill other children in an arena no one is fighting evil vampires in a field like it just is like they're they're much lighter in a way that I think is unusual now
0: they're lighter, and yet it doesn't come across, like, I know no one uses this term anymore, but it doesn't come across, like, first world problems. Like, it doesn't come across, like, a bunch of middle class girls, like, complaining about how hard their life is. It's just kind of true coming of age. And, um, yeah. and yeah, like, I, I'm, I'm totally jumping around already. But I would say um, that one thing that struck me as I was rereading this is that, um aside from a few things they don't feel overly dated either it's not like you know i I mentioned the babysitter's club a lot because i really do feel like in terms of everything in terms of tone in terms of the girl power ensemble this is very much like a graduation for like girls who like the babysitter's Mm -hmm. club when they were young but um Mm -hmm. uh the babysitter's club feels incredibly dated and like i almost wonder if amber shares like made efforts to like not mention a lot of movies or music of the time and stuff because there's very few mentions of pop culture and stuff that really, aside from the fact that these girls don't have cell phones for most of the books, there's not a lot that... I think the most dated aspect of these is that everyone loves jeans. No one cares about jeans anymore. Now
1: everyone <laughs> loves jeans. There's also... There's a few comments there's kind of like running commentary about weight and like your butt looking fat in jeans or something Mm. that I feel like (laughs) is not language we really use anymore. Also, this weird fixation on Lena having like these just gigantically enormous feet when she's a size nine and a half is such a weird, outdated sentiment. That's not a thing anybody (laughs) cares about anymore. But there's a couple little things like that where it's like, You know, if these were published right now, their target audience would not tolerate this sort of body talk. But that also was kind of the thing back then, because the It Girls were the Paris Hiltons of the world who just were rail thin. And it was just completely different beauty standards. So that, I think, was the largest thing that dated the books for me. There were a few times when I was like, wow, this would not fly. Even even in how subtly it is mentioned, I was like, this would not fly with readers in this demographic anymore. But
0: I mean what other is it than on that f- you're
1: right there's not a lot that would really date the books
0: like on the very first page there is a mention of someone saying like Oh, sending a dog to a country like Korea or somewhere else where they eat dogs. And I'm just like, whoa. Now, I will also say that like this is from the voices of teen girls. And the one thing about teenagers, like I work with a lot of teenagers now. And I will say that generally, I think teenagers are better people than they were when we were teenagers. Like I think Mm -hmm. they are like people talk about like the pure teens and stuff. And look, the examples of extremely online teens online I maintain that that is exclusive to online. You know, you deal with real teenagers out there in the real world. They're just, they're not all freaking out about everything like that. But yes, they are a lot more sensitive. Like they, like one of my dance dudes, the first time I met her, she said like, thanks girl. And then she went up after, she goes, I'm so sorry. I didn't ask for your pronouns. And I'm like, you're so kind. Like.
1: What an angel. I know. That's so like, that just shows a level of awareness and consideration for others that I just don't think was present when we were that age, which isn't to say that we were mean or anything, but we just,
2: we were ignorant. That, that
1: demographic is just so more cognizant of the people around them and how language affects people. It's like really cool. I love hearing that. I'm never around teenagers. So it is very heartening to hear that the, the, kids the are tweens so are all angels. right <laughs>
0: truly they are. Yeah. so um now before we go forward tales from the rec room has one important tradition from peak show which is plugs up front so maggie like you've done something amazing for yourself that i can't recommend enough for people you quit twitter like long before quitting Twitter was cool, um, but I nevertheless, did.
1: I've never regretted it.
0: <laughs> you've done a lot of great writing online, including um, for a lot of things that people uh, and women our age can benefit from. So, can you tell us about where, where we might find some of your work online or some of the things you've done? I know we've both written for TFD that uh, that you're really proud of.
1: Absolutely, yeah. Most of my work that will have my name on it will be on the Financial Diet. I write a lot of scripts for their YouTube channel. Those don't always have my name on them, but you can see my fingerprints over there. Um, Unfortunately, most of what is written online by me either doesn't have my name on it because I do a lot of ghostwriting. And so while I can tell you in very vague terms that my writing is in Forbes and Fast Company, you'll never know it was me. It's got someone else's name on it and your girl signs a lot of NDAs. I also do a lot of really dry technical writing that you also wouldn't know is me. But Most of my activity, most of what I do, you're going to find on Instagram, which is at Maggie Olson Taylor Olson spelled with an O-L-S-O-N. So I don't do a lot of writing there, but if you're into sewing projects and vegan food and cats and long ranty opinions on romance novels, that is a great place to come find me.
0: And I really, really loved reading um, all of your thoughts when you finally announced your pregnancy, which like, I was so wondering, like, is Maggie gonna go public about being pregnant before we do our recording together? Because I'd known for a few weeks, (laughs) I think. Um, But I loved reading everything that you had to say about like, not being sure that you wanted kids and the process of kind of changing your mind, but not feeling like, especially solid about it. Because as a person who has always felt very strongly that they didn't want children, but like, occasionally, and I can say this now, because I still feel confident in my decision, I occasionally have pangs of regret about not having children. And um, just in my current situation, it would not be a smart idea to have children because my husband is, yeah. like, I'm 34, my husband is 50. Um, don't become a parent at 50. Uh, not advisable. Um, but um but, like, I don't know, it was just such a refreshing take to read that it doesn't have to feel like this dogmatic, hardcore thing. Um, and again, Yeah, like, thank you. Yeah, th- these, movies, th- these movies, books are about, like, conversations between women and, you know, women having the hard conversations. And I think, I don't know, it was just, it was that talk that made me kind of re- want to reach out, like, hey, do you want to talk about the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants books? <laughs> like, <laughs>
1: yeah. It's funny, too, because I think, I think... People read and consume art and media for a lot of reasons, but ultimately something that is so universal about humans is we just, we want to feel less alone. We don't ever feel like we're the, we don't ever want to feel like we're the only ones feeling something, the only ones fearing something, the only ones experiencing uncertainty. And part of what I was wanting to do with that conversation on Twitter and kind of opening up about that was just showcasing the fact that like, A lot of people feel this way. It's easy to get drowned out by the voices who feel certain about having children or wanting to get married or the kind of career path they want to follow. But ultimately, uncertainty is like a lot more common than you think. And I also, I really hate this Mark Manson, like if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. I'm like, I don't think that you can simplify things in that way. I just don't think you can boil it down to something like that. So it's it's a funny pivot because part of that conversation, my goal was to be like, hey, guys, you're not alone. A lot of people feel this way. And I think that is why people turn to books. And especially when you are a teenager and figuring out how to process a lot of emotions for the first time, big ones, small ones, adult ones. Going to books like the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants books, where there's a really good blend of the characters dealing with the kind of everyday struggles of just being a teenager and also really big life stuff, can make a lot of people feel less isolated and feel like, oh, wow, Tibby went through this, or Carmen went through this. Like, I'm not alone. I can see myself in here. I can learn some lessons here. And I think that's like a really important part of reading, especially as a teenager
0: hmm. So uh, on that note, let's let's dive into kind of like where, who, where and what you were up to, like when when these books first came out. So did you read, I guess, starting kind of from the first book, but did you read these books within the first year that they came out or afterward down the line?
1: I think a little bit down the line, I think I started reading them because I wanted to have read the books before watching the first movie.
0: That is exactly
1: so I what I did too. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was, because the, bo- the books came out, the first book came out in 2001, the movie came out in 2005. So I probably read the first book in like, oh, four, oh, five.
0: Yeah, I, I recall reading the first book. So uh, summer of 2003 was the summer before I started, um, before I started high school. It was also the first summer that I went to orchestra camp. And so Oh yeah, um, I would like to thank the American oh, Pie romantic. franchise of films for um, making me unable to tell people what I did during my summers. I want to emphasize there were strings, so it was orchestra camp. Um, no
1: flutes, no flutes, people. I yeah,
0: I'm a brass player. I'm a French horn player. So, um, but so I took like a huge thing of books, and I believe I. <sighs> actually the first one was something i was when i borrowed from a girl in my cabin um that was also the summer that i read speak for the first time and speak is my all-time favorite like most formative young adult book. Wonderful. I think I've talked on this podcast before about not only Speak the novel, but Speak the really amazing uh, movie that no one has seen. Stars a very young uh, Kristen Stewart. Yeah, Kristen
1: Stewart. Yeah. One of her
0: first roles, I think like post Panic Room, but like pre everything else. Um, she's amazing in it. Steve Zahn's in it, but um so Speak left the bigger impression on me and The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, I barely finished. I don't I don't think I did finish. And then a couple years later when I saw it was going to be made into a movie, I was like, "Okay, I'm going to finish this because the movie looks really cute. I want to know what's going on." Um so in previous episodes, we've asked like, "Oh, what were your go-to movie snacks during this era?" But like, I don't think people have reading snacks. So like, do you have reading snacks? <laughs> like, what were your go-to reading snacks? <laughs>
1: I don't, I'm sure there's some TikTok girl out there who's like, here's the charcuterie board I made for reading A Court of Thorns and Roses. <laughs> I do the vast majority of my reading either while I'm eating meals or right before bed after I brush my teeth. So I very rarely have a snack while I'm reading. If anything, I'll have tea, which makes me feel very quaint that I sit and like drink my tea and read my books. So that's probably my go-to reading snack. How about you?
0: I am very anti reading snack. Um, and Ooh. I don't have a lot of food hangups. Like, I um I I can jest pretty openly about this because my whole family jokes about this. Everyone in my family either is on the spectrum or has ADHD, and yet mm-hmm. I am the only one without food hangups. Like my mom fully can't have her food touching, my brother can't eat burnt bits. Um I like I would be happy if you parked me in front of a trough you know I'm a slob (laughs) and yet one of the few things I'm really really picky about. if I touch my book with like a finger that has had a strawberry on it or something I'm like oh no I've ruined it like I used to read books in the bath when I was little and I dropped a book just slightly and like it got like the the corners curled up a little bit and I was like I am never letting my book even near a sink again. Like, I don't like stuff that makes the pages feel ripply. I don't like, um, a friend of mine lent me, a, uh, lent me an investigative journalism book a couple of years ago. And the first thing I did was spill coffee on it. And so the first thing I did was, like, I went out and bought her another one because I was like, hey, I ruined this book. And she's like, oh, it's not even ruined. It's fine. And I'm like, no, it's ruined. See, the pages are crinkly now. And uh, mm-hmm. so like I am very like no nothing can touch this book.
1: That's a really good point. I've never thought of that before, but I also feel like if I were to have a reading snack, it would have to be dry and non-powdery cuz I wouldn't I wouldn't want to get it on my book or I wouldn't have to like either like lick or like cl- like clean my fingers after every bite. That would be annoying. So I think I'm going to join your camp on this.
0: I'd say pretzels or a banana are the safest book snack. Oh.
1: A banana is a really good idea.
0: Because, like, apples are very clean, but they're very drippy. So, yeah, pretzels and bananas, Mm -hmm. which, you know, both two of my favorite things. So what did young Maggie love about these books?
1: So there are kind of two things about it that felt kind of um, indulgent to me. So I was a very, very late bloomer in terms of, like, physical intimacy with boys, I'm straight, so it was with boys for me, um and kind of getting to live vicariously through these girls, having these kind of fantastical romantic experiences in Greece like that to me was like so outside of my experience that it just like felt kind of like, ooh, wow, and I also um for a lot of different reasons. My parents were more on the conservative side, not politically, but in terms of what sort of media they would let us watch as kids, largely because something about the combination of my parents' genetics contributed to three extremely tender-hearted children who were very, very sensitive. Like, there are stories of them taking all three of us out of movie theaters uncontrollably sobbing because like someone kicked a dog or someone... Made a baby cry. Like, we just were so sensitive that our parents That's were like, You're so can't sweet handle. to me,
0: though. Like, that means you're yeah, raising empathetic like, children.
1: Oh my gosh. All three of us were so, or like one time our dad was reading us a book where a cat died and all three of us started bawling, and our mom comes upstairs and is like, What happened? So, I have huge gaps in my pop culture knowledge from our like coming of age era. Because I wasn't allowed to watch the TV and movies that were kind of the teen staples of that time. To this day, I've never seen an episode of like Dawson's Creek, Saved by the Bell. I never really saw any of the raunchy teen movies. So the only outlet I had for indulging in those kind of like more adult themes was the written word. And my parents did not police my library usage at all. <laughs> so well, and you can self-regulate me, with, I...
0: with reading as well, because it's yeah. so much easier to just close the book if something makes Absolutely. you uncomfortable. It's not
1: nearly as, like, sensorily overwhelming, you know? Like, if some there's no noise, there's no bright colors, it's not as overwhelming. So that's a really good point. But yeah, so I think I also, I wanted to read the books before the movies, but I also had heard that, like, there was sex in it, and there was, like, a summer romance in it, and I was like, ooh, juicy. <laughs> so at 14 or 15, whenever I read these books, I was like, Oh my gosh! This is basically *Sex and the City*. So that's kind of what I loved was like the romance of it and the chance to explore what felt to me like adult themes in kind of a safe environment.
0: Yeah, for me, I loved a good girl posse book. You know, like I said, I was a voracious reader of the Babysitter's Club books when I was young. And I think I even held onto those books for a little longer than what might've been considered age appropriate, just because like, and I would I would kind of read them in secrets um, because I knew like I'm probably too old for these books, but these books just make me so happy. Um, mm-hmm. And I was looking for another girl posse book. And one of the reasons is actually, and like, I don't want to sound too like, You know i wasn't like other girls but the fact is like i i was bullied a lot as a child i had very few female friends um as a child and it took me until university to even like make strong individual female bonds at all because of just trust issues i had um Mm -hmm. and it's taken me until now ladies and gents and and non-binary pals now at 34 to actually finally have a group of girlfriends and I mean naturally my group of girlfriends uh girl and non-binary friends were all just people yelling about hockey um so uh proof that you know you don't have to be into quote unquote girly things but um yeah so I like a bit of that was kind of projection and it was like the sleeping into this fantasy of what would my life be like if I had a really strong group of girlfriends who, was always there, who were always there for me. You know, my sister was five years older than me and we were just a little bit too far apart in age to have that kind of unconditional, I will be there for you all the time kind of relationship, especially when we were young. Like, it's much easier. 34 and 39 are very different than 14 and 9, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, that was... I think that was the biggest thing was that like I got to and appreciating that these girls were all different and not even in a stereotypical way. Like, you know, you and I grew up in the Spice Girls era where like a girl had to Mm -hmm. be sporty and a girl had to be posh. And that was the way we would, you know, kind of classify ourselves within our little school girl posses. But I liked that aside from the fact that you, I guess you could say like Bridget was the athlete and Lena was the artist, but it's so much more like... You know, they weren't defined by their hobbies, they were defined by their temper, temperaments and appreciating the way the girls were all different from one another and the way they grew over the series. Like, I really loved yeah. that. Um, so, yeah, I it was me like <laughs> wanting my my girl posse
1: it was me wanting to be like, what is it like to kiss a boy?
0: <laughs> so so oh, was God, your love God. of this book series something that you shared with your friends, or were you a little bit more on your own in liking it?
1: You know, I have no memory in high school of ever talking about books with my friends. I just don't, I don't know if that is a, I'd be, I want to hear what you have to say about this because I don't remember. And now I have a lot of friends that I talk to about books. Like I have a ton of friends, especially at my yoga studio, a bunch of my yoga friends have bookstagrams that are really fun to follow. And I just, I have lots of friends who just post about books all the time. But when I was this age, I feel like reading was something that was kind of just my hobby. I wasn't ashamed of it, but it just wasn't something I talked to my friends about. What about you?
0: Um, Well, like I said, I didn't have female friends in high school, um, you know, and I had very, I did, I do think I had very, very healthy male friendships. I will say this, it helps that I wasn't a hot girl in high school. So I knew that my male friends were my friends because they were actually my (laughs) friends. For a while it was because I had a trampoline, but um, no. Um, But yeah, so I... I would never talk about the books I read because the one thing about having mostly guy friends is like, yes, I was a bit of a tomboy, but I was also quite ashamed of my girly interests. Like, I never talked about ballet, even though ballet was such a big part of my life. I never talked about that with my male friends because I didn't want to overwhelm them with the girly stuff. And so I certainly was not going to talk about this this book and, you know, the movie adaptation of it. It's like, no, do you want to come see the girl from Gilmore Girls? is that Like. <laughs> Um, it was it's such an interesting
1: yeah. product of that era, that whole not like, I know what you mean about like, you know, I don't want to be like, oh, I'm not like the other girls. But I feel like being not like the other girls was kind of a thing that we strove for back then. It was sort of like girly interests were not considered as cool. And if you were into romance novels, it was like, oh, that's so embarrassing. Whereas now I'm like, I love romance novels. I don't care who knows it. But I really, I really relate to what you're saying. Because even though, I did have girlfriends, but I did kind of feel like I couldn't talk about the fact that I was reading this, like, girl-centered, girl-power novel and that I was reading it because I was curious about, like, the romance stuff. I was like, oh, I can talk about the fact that I read Michael Crichton, but God forbid anyone knows that I care about, is Lena going to get her art scholarship?
0: <laughs> I I think there was... Um... And I I have very complicated feelings about like kind of compulsory femininity in teenage girls because, and I've mentioned I mentioned this on our like millennial pop divas episode how I didn't identify with the Britney Spears and Jessica Simpsons of the world, but I also really did not identify with the Avril Lavings of the world because I grew up, and this is me sounding like wait, like too hipster for you, but I grew up listening to Alanis and Liz Fair at you know five years old, and so I saw that stuff as manufactured and full of shit as well and what i realized pretty much when Oliver Levine came on the scene is oh no matter what you do everyone is going to try to put you in a box and again that is why i liked these books because i felt like the girls weren't in boxes i felt like we were seeing them grow and like like i said these books are really devoid of pop culture references and so um you kind of got to see the girls like actually bursting out of the little boxes that anyone tried to put on them and like you know they grew just enough from book to book that you could see that as development even negative development and so um and and I also think with teen girls and I I I would hope I I almost wonder I want to ask the teens that I work with like are teen book clubs a thing now because book clubs even are seen as far less stuffy than they were when we were young but I don't know if they have reached like kind of the youthful. Uh, edge of things, but I would love to know if like teenagers are getting together to regularly and openly discuss books. Like I, I would hope that book talk has a role in that.
1: I would be really curious about that too because I don't remember. Like I said, I don't remember that coming up with my friends when I was that age. But I like what you said about how the girls in the book kind of defy characterization because, of course, I mean you know, Mean Girls is like an icon of our coming of age, and there's that whole joke where it's like here's the jocks, here's the sexually asked to band geeks, here's the art freaks. Like, you were in a box and you could only be friends with others in your box. Like, that was kind of the joke. But the four girls in this book are all really different. Like, Bridget is super sporty. None of her other friends, none of the other girls are super athletic, but it doesn't, Prevent them from being friends. They all have different interests. They all, you know, one of my best friends is a professional improv comedian. I would never in a million years pursue that as a hobby, let alone like a meaningful source of income. I sit in a room all day by myself and write about chemical peptizers and tire compounds. And yet she's like one of the most important people in my life. And like you and I have gotten to be like online besties. I don't know anything about hockey. Hockey is a huge part of like your heart you know so I know Maggie from Minnesota is not a hockey person so I think that's one of the things that is cool about this book too is that not only do the girls defy characterization the things about them that maybe could tag them as part of a specific high school archetype don't prevent them from being friends with each other.
0: Yeah I, I fully agree so I looking at kind of the context of this era first of all um i was looking up to see like okay when exactly did this drop because like what came before it what came after it uh my jaw dropped at the at the release date because i like a lot of turn of the millennium stuff and when i talk about pop culture trends the fact is september 11th actually did completely shift a lot of culture we talk about uh, this episode hasn't gone live yet, but two weeks ago, we had an episode about the movie Miracle, which is a hockey movie, um, set in Minnesota. So there you go. Um, but um, I, I don't know. Have you seen Miracle?
1: I I don't know if I have, but I do know that you have a Juno episode coming up. And I do have to tell you, also set in Minnesota. More
0: Minnesota. The,
1: the fountain at the Ridgedale Mall that she talks about jumping into. I used to work at the Ridgedale Mall, so like that's like ah. that's me. I haven't seen Miracle, but I used to work at the Juno Mall, which makes me culturally relevant. So I used to work at the Ann Taylor.
0: I have walked the halls of the Mean Girls High School. So uh it's oh. it's a Tobacco School of the Arts and I got to teach there. Uh, mm-hmm. like guest teach there once, but um in, in Toronto. It's super cool. Um but no, so like Miracle provided some good examples of how, like, you know, the wave of patriotism that followed, like, which we think of patriotism today and we think of, like, country fried, like, insane patriotism. But, like, the 2001, 2002, 2003 brand of patriotism was, like, the Disney stars and they're like, I love the flag kind of thing. um, And, like, so that was very much a product of its time. Or even the way marketing changed. Like, you you know, you've worked in B2B marketing. Um, well, and B2B is very different from B2C. But, like... Um, how the 90s advertising was super duper cynical and surreal and humorous and post 9/11 everything went back to sincerity and then 2010s we got back to uh surreal weird shit and then covid we pivoted hard back into sincerity so like it's it's really all over the place but when i say like 9/11 changed everything in terms of pop culture it really did and so i'm like was this before or after oh it was right on the day oh my gosh
1: Right, that same day. It was a
0: Tuesday, and I forgot that back in the days of physical media, which this podcast is a tribute to physical media, that was the day when things were released. Home video, CDs, books, was Tuesdays. Mm -hmm. Um, It was also my dad's Mm -hmm. birthday. My dad's 43rd birthday. 43rd, yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. My brother's birthday is August 6th. Like, we've got all sorts of problematic birthdays in our family. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, my
1: gosh. Yeah, that's intense. Yeah.
0: No January 6th, ths fortunately. Um, but that's good. Yes. Yeah. But so I will say, like, it, it was really funny comparing this to the literary scene of today because the last five years have seen such an explosion of popularity of young adult novels, which like it's helping reading feel more accessible to teens who might not necessarily be naturally into reading like you know and yeah which is not to say that young adult novels can't also be challenging but they do offer this kind of like hey if you're worried you're not gonna look cool for reading don't worry or like check out this cool cover art doesn't this look fun like kids who might not see books as fun I think there's they're marketed so well now that a it's off. Like I have no problem with young adult novels going so mainstream because it's offering kind of this like yeah. life raft to kids who might not have otherwise gotten into books.
1: I think it also offers a a nice inroad even for adults who don't really consider themselves readers because you don't have to go straight from not being a reader to Stephen King. There's kind of this easier inroad. The books are you know the writing style tends to be a little simpler. Um, and I, I don't I don't mean that to be condescending or like they're somehow lesser. I think, you know, young adult novels can be incredibly powerful. I actually wrote my undergraduate thesis on The Hunger Games, so obviously I'm very passionate about young adult novels. But I think it's interesting how I agree with you that they really offer... Something special to their target demographic, but they also offer an interesting inroad to adults and I wonder too if they create kind of a conversation piece between teenagers and adults when that's like two demographics that have a harder time bridging that gap, but suddenly, if they're enjoying the same media as these things go viral, like maybe is this making it easier for us to understand teenagers and the way that they see adult issues and things like that i don't I don't know the answer to that, but I do kind of wonder. What is it about the fact that everyone, regardless of age, was reading Twilight? You know, like, what else has the power to kind of unify the generations for what like young adult literature?
0: For what it's worth, I was not reading Twilight, but it had very little to do with, like, <laughs> this is too girly for me. It had everything to do with the fact that I'm not into fantasy and, like, I, I need everything to be super grounded in realism. That's mm-hmm. also why I like these books. Nothing supernatural about them whatsoever. Um,
1: but Except the pants. The pants are magical.
0: I, You know what? I've had some magical pants myself. That's fair. That's fair. This is not the first time on Tales from the Rec Room that I've talked about the encircled uh, dressy sweat pant. They're magical. And apparently they work really nicely as maternity pants. Just saying.
1: Ooh. Okay. DM me a link. They're a little
0: pricey, but friend of the show, Rachel, and I both live in these pants. Um, Okay. Different pairs, for what it's worth. Um, But...
1: (laughs) You don't mail them to each other. We're like, not both wearing about them at once,
0: walking down the street like some sort of novelty act. um But yeah, like I've also seen, like, there have been so many really commercially successful adaptations, like To All the Boys I've Loved Before, which I still haven't actually watched because I'm like, I, you know, as much as I totally agree, young adults, uh, media, adults can enjoy it too. Every time I look at To All the Boys I've Loved Before, I'm like, eh, I'm too old for this. Um, you've got.
1: I will challenge you to watch it. I think as teenage movies go it's just about perfect and if you're looking for something that doesn't thrust you into this world of like an oppressive totalitarian regime just like kind of normal what it's like to be a teenager what it's like to be in a in a family as a teenager it's I think they're just fantastic the first one is so great I love all of them but I will tell you I hear you on being like I might be too old for this to all the boys I've loved before is mm-hmm. really so fun. And, it's a great watch,
0: and I don't have a like to stand on because I did watch the entirety of the increasingly awful series Thirteen Reasons Why. Uh, the first season is the only one that is based on the book, which um, might make sense as to why the first season is the only good one. Everything else gets so bad that by the fourth season, I was like, "It's car wreck. I can't look away." Um, but and then all yeah. the various John Green books that have been adapted. I think because he said I know the big one was A Fault in Our Stars, but Paper Towns got adapted as well. Right.
1: Paper Towns got adapted, and then also, um, the one that I'd love to see get adapted is Abundance of Catherines, because I just loved it. It was such a fun read. I would love to see that one get adapted, but Fault in Our Stars is the one that, the one that has gotten picked up.
0: Does we need to talk about Kevin Count as a young adult book? Is that sure got adapted?
1: Kevin what? We
0: need to talk about Kevin. Have you never read or seen...
1: Oh, no. I, I... I mentioned as a child being excessively sensitive. There's a degree to which that's still true as an adult. And, um, you know, you and I both write for The Financial Diet. And I remember Chelsea Fagan, TFD's founder, tweeting about turning the movie on and turning it off because she found it so upsetting. And I'm like, if she, who I'm pretty sure is much steelier than I am, could not handle this movie. It is absolutely not something I can handle. So I am 90%
0: sure to she has seen Midsommar. Um, and I will say, and without going into spoilers or anything graphic, both the book and the movie have that very tense and disturbing nature. But like Kevin's crime, which is a violent crime, is the least disturbing part of it. Like the narrative of it even makes like him eating a sandwich seem really sinister and awful. Something about it. So, oh, yeah. um, but yeah, yeah. like it took, this took place like when, like when a lot more of the young adult novel scene was starting to hit its stride. But looking back, like the big sellers of this era, this was still filling what I saw as a missing gap because there was a lot of adventure. This was when Harry Potter was starting to gain big international attention. Um, there was stuff that was targeted toward teenage girls, but it seemed to be trauma or romance. Like I said, Speak, favorite novel of all time. This came out. I think it came out in 1999. Um, there wasn't a lot about female friendships. And there is, you know, like you said, romance and sex, like, were a part of this book, uh, book series, but this was built about friendships. Like, Mm -hmm. I still think, like, this really took a lot of beats from The Babysitter's Club. This was just kind of a grown-up version of it. It took, you know, the magic and what we loved about that series, which is all about growing up and finding yourself. But, um... I do want to talk about the way that the world changed in the early 2000s and why after this period you started to see more young adult novels that, as you said, focus on apocalyptic and dystopian settings. And it's funny because I do know that you're a huge fan of The Hunger Games. You're a big fan of um, Twilight and stuff. And I'm wondering why was I the one who was asked to write the script on TFD about why people love dystopian novels? Because this was so your bread and butter.
1: (laughs) That's a great question. I think that part of my identity is less present on Twitter. And I think I more so interacted with the TFD gang on Twitter. So maybe they just didn't know. But that is that is funny, because Hunger Games was like so central to my identity when I was in college <laughs> that it is it is in my blood. And even I recently finished yoga teacher training and part of our, one of our homework pieces at the end was to give a presentation tying like a yoga concept to a piece of popular media. And I gave a whole thing about like, can catness be related to this one particular Hindu deity and how does this translate to this like yoga concept so even That's now very nifty. I'm like hunger games is applicable
0: everywhere but but yeah like i uh, we started seeing the world change and teens felt powerless to change things like this was really kind of like the boiling point of teens starting to care more about their place in the world and um, you know This book series, meanwhile, like, while cursed with the day it hit shelves, was almost the opposite of that. It offered a reprieve from that, like, because the girls' problems, like I said, they're not, they're not first world problems or anything, but they're highly individualized. They're not dealing with the collapse Mm -hmm. of society. They aren't expected to solve major systemic problems. And like, again, this is why people sometimes dismiss young adult novels that are more grounded in these highly individualized problems. Um, And... I'm glad, like, I think the one thing about young adult novels of this uh, time was that they were either incredibly white or if they weren't, they were about, like, segregation and slavery Mm. and immigration and, like, all all suffering. But um, I Mm. see this more as, like, a really accurate reflection of what being a teenager is. Like, I do think Lena, I I expect her to care more about boys than about the state of the economy in Greece, which at the time was not good.
1: Yeah, I... I I really agree with you. And I think, you know, if I'm not tying it back to Hunger Games, I'm tying it back to Twilight. And one of the things I think about a lot is why was Twilight so popular when it's so easy to poke holes in that book? There are so many problems with the plot, so many problems with the characters. The writing is really mediocre at best. And so it's like, why in the age of Hunger Games and Divergent and all these other, you know totalitarian regime stories with these really strong female leads why why did twilight in that season of strong female leads become so popular and part of it i think is the fact that a lot of people simply don't consume hunger games and see themselves in katniss they don't see themselves as survivors they don't see themselves as someone who could who could kill who could lead a resistance all those things they're like they see themselves in bella who's quiet. She's kind of shy. She's not super comfortable socially. She kind of wants to sit and read books. And yet she is considered extremely lovable by this really desirable man. And I I wonder if there's some parallel there when all these books are on these like big, heavy topics. It's like, no, I, I kind of want to read about someone I can relate to. And I think that there's a little bit of a, yeah, I'm kind of repeating myself here, but I do kind of wonder about that from the perspective of both this book and Twilight. Is like These are fairly normal teenage girls who are in pretty normal situations, like barring the fact that Edward is a vampire. This is someone who earns the love of a desirable man without having to be all that remarkable. And that's kind of a fantasy that a lot of people want to buy into. So like you said, they care more about, boys than the Greek economy. That's a very normal teenager thing, especially back then. We just weren't as, our generation just wasn't as woke at that age. So I agree with you. I think this filled a gap.
0: And it it almost like, again, rereading it made me miss the time when I cared more about cute boys, or in my case, also cute girls, um, than about, like, the fact that my province has been under smoke warning for like several weeks so it just oh my gosh you know what uh this was a few weeks ago now i had i walked to work because that's healthy um i had to wear my kn95 outside i i haven't you know this is why you don't get rid of your masks people because we might get wildfire season that is so bad you have to wear a mask outside
1: that's wild. My parents are in Minnesota. And so they've gotten a lot of that smoke drifted down here. It. I live in Ohio full time. And it hasn't been as bad where I live. But Minnesota has seen it not as bad as you guys, but they've they've experienced some of it. Well, because it's coming well. from it's us. So yeah, mm-hmm. our closest neighbor. Sorry.
0: Um. So but yeah, when I was looking at some of the most revered young adult novels around this period, like and when the original four were introduced, like, what were some of the ones that won the big prizes and stuff there's true believer make lemonade number two coming of age but still really really dark and largely has romance driving the plot um a lot of other books in 2001 like as a historical fiction so you do have the underrepresented voices but not much contemporary in nature. Um, And then later we see things like true confessions of a heartless girl, a complicated kindness. On that note, I will just say it's really great to see Miriam Taves finally kind of getting her flowers um, with um, uh, women talking this year. But uh, to be like a bit of a hipster, I was into Miriam Taves like 15 years ago. Love her. Um, But... um, These are, you know, more conflict focused, The Book Thief, historical fiction. Um, It's a kind of funny story, like more trauma. Um, And when I kind of looked at the first novel... I almost looked at the four girls respective adventures as like, this is a fusion of the type of popular young adult novels that you were seeing at the time. You have one girl who's going on this idealized, like difficult for the average person to attain, like summer romance abroad. You So you have like the summer romance novel. You have, you know, the one you're like, nothing happens in my boring small town. I'm not like other girls. And then like, wh- let's throw in a cancer subplot story. You have like, How to Deal with Your Life-Changing, Blended Families Edition, uh, and then you have, like, Coping with Your Obvious, Unaddressed Mental Illness and Trauma novel. So it's, like, a fusion of kind of the, like, aside from the fact that there was no historical fiction, you've got, like, the big young adult novel archetypes of the day.
1: You do manage to hit on all the tropes without following in the footsteps of those tropes that have been kind of trod so many times before yeah it's kind of amazing how she manages to like hit on the high points while also creating a story that stands on its own
0: yeah so we're getting into free discussion which i know you're really excited about because we can't wait to um to talk shit about a certain male character but I just want to get this point in like I like all the novels except for I I will say that I capital D dislike the fifth book but um as the novels go on I do find they weaken quite a bit like there are some um bright sparks like especially in the third and fourth like you see like um, I really like um I really like Lena's plot in the third book and stuff. But as the novels go on, I find they weaken quite a bit. And one of the reasons is like they're growing up as the readers are, but Amber shares seems unsure of how to handle sex. Um I agree so much. Um, because there are still young readers, and like frankly, like it seems like the novels get very sex negative. And I will add that like I I need to acknowledge that it is weird and awkward writing about sex from the perspective of young people who aren't yet adults, because like some, not all, but some teenagers have sex. I lost my virginity at fifteen. I was, you know, I wasn't sexually active in high school. I was a sexual athlete in high school, um, but <laughs> it was like the only athletics I did. Um, no, that's not I was, true. I was I played almost twenty
1: five. I was like so deeply on the bench <laughs> throughout.
0: Um, oh. like- and and it's and it's all valid but like so i'm working on a coming of age novel right now and sex does play a part in the lead character's development but it feels really gross and strange to write about in that sense and i'm still like not quite sure how to navigate it i kind of like i've been chipping away at it and getting better at it but it is very it's it's a truly messed up line to walk so um so i get that but like up to until the 5th book which i think is classified more as a spin off than a sequel like Everyone who has sex is sort of punished for having sex, or it's clear that having sex is a bad thing. Like Tibby's very first time having sex results in a pregnancy scare. Like Kosos won't have sex with Lena, but then he goes and has sex with some harlot who fakes a pregnancy and baby traps him. And Bridget has sex as an obvious trauma response, which is a thing that happens. Um, and uh, and maybe now's a good time to talk about... The really weird way in which uh, Bridget's plot was handled, I will say, though, that at least in the movie, they change one thing, which is that Eric comes and visits her at the end of the summer and says, hey, what happened was my responsibility and I shouldn't have done that. Would it have been so hard for the books to do that? Would it have
1: been so hard? Yeah. Yeah. Can you, can I be set loose on this topic? Because I, this is the one that I'm so fired up about. So... I have been thinking about this so much ever since you and I decided we were going to do this episode together. So I reread all the books in preparation for this episode. I watched the movie with my parents the other night. So I'm like, I'm like the juiciest I've ever been. On like this specific topic. So what happens in this book? For those who don't remember, is Bridget and Eric have sex at soccer camp. When this happens, Bridget is 15 years old. Eric is 19. In and he's any a coach. Context, And he's a coach. In any context, that is statutory rape. So I actually, I actually Googled this because I was like, well, in Canada and most of the United States, so in Canada, the age of consent is 16. In most of the United States, depending on which state you're in, it's 16, 17, or 18. There's some Romeo and Juliet laws where like a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old can have sex, but a 16-year-old and a 19-year-old can't, whatever. But I was like, maybe the law is different in Mexico, and maybe that's why she put the story there so that she could have two characters this age have sex without having to figure out how to deal with the legality of that in the plot. And I kind of I couldn't find a straight answer because I'm pr- I'm pretty sure based on the city that was nearby that they're in Baja California, sir. I couldn't figure out what the age of consent was. I found kind of conflicting information. And then I was like you know what? Why am I trying to defend this? Why am I trying to make this okay? A 15-year-old and a 19-year-old having sex is not okay, especially when he is in a position of authority. And to your point, it's in the book or in the movie, he does come forward and say, this was my responsibility. I should have stopped this. And she says, I did it for the wrong reasons, which maybe that is what the author was trying to send to us as a message. is like, Don't have sex before you're ready. Don't have sex to prove something. Don't have sex to like show a guy that you're down to hang or whatever, which is like, to be fair, a legitimate message. But she fumbles it so hard. And I'm like, if that was what you were trying to achieve, make them 16 and 18. Don't put this inside of a statutory
0: rape situation. Well, and like, I get that they're trying to show, I I read it as they're trying to show that Bridget is really not stable. And I, I will say like there's, and I think there are other ways to show this, but, um, that often your friend who comes across as the fun one who's always down is your friend who is actually, like, really suffering. And that is something that I actually really preach to people. Like, I, you know, I know I talk about this constantly, but my my very good friend from middle school who passed away at 30 um, of, of a drug overdose, that she always seemed like the quote-unquote fun one, and thus it took us way too long to realize that she had an issue with substance abuse mm-hmm. because we read it as, like, just, she's so crazy. It's um, and- like
1: Fun Bobby from Friends where they discover that this guy is like struggling so much with alcoholism and depression, and they write it off as a comedic plot point. But I'm like, there's something pretty heavy in there that this guy clearly needed help. And you guys were like, no, you're not fun now that you're trying to work on yourself. And it was like bleak, bleak.
0: Yeah. bleak. So I get that like they're trying to show that Bridget is reckless and what's more reckless mm-hmm. than sleeping with an authority figure. And so on one hand, I get that. However, I, I think you just need to really... You need to do one of two things because I'm kind of like, why can't Eric just be a boy who's at the boys camp across the lake and you're fraternizing when you shouldn't be because that wouldn't be edgy enough because most teenagers have sex, but Bridget is so wild and reckless that she'll have sex with a coach. At the very least, what really angered me was that in the third book, they become a couple. Or maybe it's the fourth book. Um, that no, it's they... the
1: third book. In the third book, she goes to the soccer camp, and then they are coaches together. Yeah, right.
0: Yeah. And I feel like you know what? He didn't need to come back into her life, especially mm-hmm. because like my main complaint with the fifth book is: wow, literally all of them except Carmen end up with like their first love. That's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, I just think there's no reason he needs to come back. It's a big country you know like mm-hmm. and the you don't need to reward them for that like it should be a thing where like you know Bridget has moved on and she can recognize healthy romantic and sexual mm-hmm. relationships now
1: i agree i think the fact that if 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 it had unfolded and that eric either didn't come back at all and she was able to have a relationship with someone at the soccer camp that was healthier and more appropriate and where she did not feel this I guess, internal, but, you know, he didn't stop, he didn't draw boundaries when he should have as the adult figure. Like, if she could have found a way to be like, oh, this is what a healthy romantic and sexual relationship looks like, if she could have found that with someone else, then I could forgive some of the stuff that I really hate about how it unfolds in the first book. But like, to your point, Eric is rewarded for his behavior. And we see this guy who has proven he cannot control himself around teenage girls. He yeah. comes back and he's a coach again. I'm like, like are you if- kidding me? He had sex with a 15 year old camper. There's no consequences for him. He gets the girl anyway. It just, it. Uh, I'm like, did it have to be Eric? Could someone else have stepped in and been the one that she had a healthy relationship with? It's just the whole thing makes me so mad
0: if I, if I were Bridget, um, which means if I had any modicum of athletic ability, um, I, and I came back and it's two years later and I've maybe worked through my shit and realized that this wasn't good, especially after like the second relationship, the second book, you see her have this like really nice appropriate little like summer kiss with this like boy she knew when she was a little kid and it's very sweet. Um, and if I like, come back to this camp and i see this guy and hopefully i've learned a little bit i'm like oh hey try not to fuck any campers on your way to the dorm rooms
1: yeah i would love to see her come back and stand up to him and have either have the conversation that they end up having in the movie in which case the lesson we're supposed to have learned as the reader is clear and he shows some accountability for his role that he played in this or have her come back And strip him down, and kind of take him to task for what he did, and show that like he is the felon here; he's the one who overstepped, and let these young girls who are reading this book recognize that this is inappropriate. When I was I was kind of googling this to figure out what else are people saying about this issue, and I found a article on Hello Giggles, which is Zoe Deschanel's. Website where they were talking
0: about that's the a name and they I were like, heard "Oh, long time. I know, <laughs>
1: hello, giggles." And they were saying, "Like, oh, guess who's playing the hot soccer boyfriend?" And I was like, "Excuse me? We're categorizing him as hot and not a predator with no boundaries? It just, it like, oh my gosh, I got my dander up so bad over this stupid character. So
0: I, I will also date, say that they one hundred percent whitewashed him in the movie. Not that, like, because." Oh, yeah. He is supposed to be a Latino character. He's supposed to be, um, mm-hmm. Me- and I do, I do have friends, actually, I, one of my old colleagues, uh, his mother's Mexico from Mexico. He identifies as a white guy, but a white Latino guy, but they explicitly say in the book that Eric is darker. And yet you've yeah. got this guy who's like has
1: family, family who lives in the city nearby. That's like a big plot point is his grandma lives right there. All of that is erased, and he looks like every other blonde, blue eyed teen heartthrob from that era. Like it's so boring. Yeah.
0: He's just Ken. God, I'm He's so excited for Ken. the Barbie movie. Can't um wait. fun fact, and I can say this now that I no longer work there. I used to work with um Ryan Gosling's sister. Did you really? Did you really? We, we our desks were like two pods away from each other her name's That's mandy so i don't cool. think i don't think she still works for the company either but she's a producer and she's really really nice and really funny and of course very beautiful
1: so fun i kind of love to hear about like celebrities like super normal nice family members i just i'm like you know i'm glad that you have a nice sister ryan reynolds and i'm glad that blake lively has a nice sister-in-law and i'm glad those kids have a nice ryan gosling not
0: reynolds the the two canadian ryans they're very easy to mix up oh
1: okay well Eva mendez's kids have a nice aunt i love that for them
0: yes um but yeah so as it's weird because i think i hate lena costos more than um which to be fair costos is not a predator but um i i can't believe i actually ended up hating them because for me it's more that the lena plots are strongest when they have nothing to do with costos like i said my favorite lena plot is the third novel when her father's refusing to pay for her art school and she's learning about her family through drawing them and like there's no Costas in that book. None at all. It's not even like the fourth where you think you're going to get it, get through it without Costas, and then he fucking shows up in the middle of it. Um, like, it shows Lena learning how to stand on her own. And so I resent that in the next two books, we go back to Lena's a huge sad sack who has accomplished so much in her life. Like, becoming a full-time college professor right after you finish your master's, first of all, total fantasy. But secondly, like, that's an amazing achievement. And yet, like... It's like she can literally not be happy because she's not with her dreamy Greek boy. And it undermines what I loved about the original novel, because even though like they do have their adventures, it's not about the boys. And I originally read the Kostos romance as Lena learning to be brave and learning to open herself up. And it's like, no, you learned the wrong lesson.
1: It's such an interesting thing, too, because I kind of when I put down the first book, like when I finished my reread of the first book, I was kind of baffled by the whole thing because I remember when I was younger thinking it was all very dreamy and romantic. I was the absolute queen of being hung up on the same guy for over a year at that age. So I did have her dedication. There's one boy in particular. This is the most Minnesotan sentence that will ever exit my mouth, but his name was Anders. And I had a huge crush on him for like over a year. And I actually did end up telling him I like, I like, Divulged my love in like a birthday card or something, and nothing ever came of it. But it's just like I had that kind of Lena tendency to just be into the same guy for so long. But what's interesting is in that first book, she spends almost no time with Costas. She's never with him. Like they run into each other at stuff. He sees her at the pool. They kind of awkwardly avoid each other. She causes this huge rift between these lifelong friends. That she doesn't repair, which I find really irritating. And then in the end, when they... Very Rory Gilmore. And then in the end, when they finally reconcile, like 48 hours before she leaves, they kiss and... It's supposed to be the kickoff of this great love story, but they spend no time together. It's like, when were they even able to fall in love? And in the movie, they're together all the time. She's sneaking out, they're going on adventures. And I'm like, see this, I can believe because we see them actually spending time together, getting to know each other, connecting, sharing experiences. There wasn't a lot of that in the book. And the idea that this like 15-year-long romantic saga is built on this summer where they actually don't really interact. I find kind of hard to believe. Like, I can't really root for them. I'm like, you don't know each other. You just were each other's fantasy for this one summer when you were 15 years old.
0: Well, and that's the thing is I would love for the lesson that Lena ultimately learns to be like, oh, I've spent 15 years idealizing you because I have barely seen you in person. We have Mm -hmm. barely actually spent quality time together. We've never even just like done groceries together, you know, like I I always say like you need to learn like you know that you are in love with someone when it can be like a hangover Sunday and you are miserable Mm -hmm. in a grocery store together.
1: Let me tell you, having suffered through a very nasty first trimester of pregnancy, (laughs) like nothing showed me that I married the right person than my husband, like waiting outside the bathroom while I was throwing up and being like, are you okay? I still love you. I still think you're cute. It reminds me though, there's this YouTuber I sometimes follow who just got engaged to her boyfriend who they, I guess they've been together for like a year and a half, but they have never lived in the same state. They have been long distance the whole time, except maybe a few weeks of going to stay with each other. And I'm like, you guys haven't done like food poisoning together. You haven't done like one of you having an awful like strain in your neck or something. You haven't done like the dog throwing up on the carpet together. Like it just is like, you don't actually have any type of foundation other than the fantasy and so it's like why is this her central plot line because i agree with you her whole art storyline i loved following that i loved that story i'm not gonna lie i was into the leo thing i was like oh i'm team leo sexy. he seems and leo oh my gosh i was and like he's I so love that hot in the story. movie he's so hot and like They genuinely had something in common and they had this kind of cool shared experience. His mom was clearly like the coolest person in the entire universe. And I was like, really? Then you're going back to your like fantasy crush from when you were 15 when you could have had like hot Leo who has some substance? That was a bummer.
0: Yeah, I also and I I hate this because of course like when I was thirteen and read or fourteen and reading this for the first time, I loved Tibby because I was you know again little Miss flat chested angry punk girl and loved Tibby. Love that she was into filmmaking. Um, but I, I feel like probably the greatest betrayal of the books is not the fact that, um spoiler alert for a 12-year-old novel in in the fifth book, They Kill Her Off, um, because I actually now am completely unsurprised that she was the one that Amber Shares killed off because I found she stopped knowing what to do with Tibby. Mm-hmm. The Bailey plot was incredibly moving. And then after that, she kind of didn't know what to do. Like, Tibby's plots become more, like less and less coherent my absolute least favorite one is the third uh the third book because she can't even decide what she wants it to be it's like she's not sure about Brian but also she like her sister has this horrible accident and she just spends like you end up almost disliking Tibby because you think she just spends so much time feeling sorry for herself and like it becomes um too navel gazing to be interesting And, um, you know, and and also the whole, like, learn to open yourself up to love, like, that's also a theme for Lena. So, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, which Lena, like, Lena's lesson is I have to open myself up to this one specific love. Um, But, yeah, and then, like, even Tibby freaking out about a pregnancy scare. I'm just like, girl, take a test. She spends, like, four weeks not taking a test.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know what? There was a a part. I can't remember remember exactly when this happened, but there was a... a a scene in her kind of woe is me era where she's feeling down about the fact that now that she's making films, the magic is kind of lost for her because she's seeing it's a lot of the same stuff over and over. It doesn't feel as special. And that's like something she's kind of hung up on. And then there's that scene where she is unexpectedly the one that helps Christina deliver her baby And she says to the midwife after the baby is born, like, is it magical for you every time? And the midwife says like, yes, every single time it somehow manages to be magical. And I was like, are we setting Tibby up for a career pivot in which she gets into obstetrics? And I thought, what a cool path for Tibby to take for someone who is like, classically not like a warm fuzzy person to go into this really warm fuzzy field and bring this like hyper observant kind of critical eye and perspective to that field and bring her filmmaking skills and like not only usher you know women and birthing people through this really intense period of life but also documenting it in a way that like revolutionizes the way we think about maternal health care. Like, wouldn't you love to see Tibby be the one who releases the documentary that changes the face of like black maternal health because like black maternal health is such a huge problem that it shouldn't be. And yet they never do anything never do with anything. that. And I don't know if and she's And like, the, yeah. the very
0: next novel we're just back to like the the very next novel we're just back to navel gazing Tibby. Um, back to this
1: like the same plot line and I was like like, god she had an opportunity to do something so unexpected and so so cool cool with this character character, and she just just didn't do anything with it 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 just went she literally was like you said thrown
0: away yeah yeah Yeah. so let's get into the things I love Carmen and Carmen and Bridget's um Mm -hmm. even even by the fifth novel like and it's funny because at first I thought Carmen went in a really unrealistic direction but when I was rereading it it's like I kind of like that Carmen is like She's a quote-unquote successful TV actress, but she's very much like a C-lister. And what I would have loved to see is a bit more exploration of what that means to kind of just be a C-lister, like have, you know, regular stable income from being on a procedural, but like, you know, like it's not, you're not the richest person in the world. Like, and we're seeing a lot of discourse about that right now because of the uh, SAG-AFTRA strike, but, and, and, you know, like a lot of working actors talking about like, we are not rich, we are famous, but not rich. And I would have loved to see a lot more about what that means, instead we Like have all our time just Carmen being engaged to the worst person in the world um Mm -hmm. but like there's some commentary about like who she used to be how she's changed we see an obvious journey so it's not just like oh and she's a famous actress now um and they also I did I forgot until I reread that they lay the seeds incredibly early because in the very first like opening chapter she mentions that she was a CIT volunteering to teach theater at a camp So we know that even before, like, the fourth book, that she had a theater, a knack for theater. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, I I
1: have forgotten about that as well. Yeah, that they do kind of, like, like hint at this not being something that totally came came out of the blue for for her in the fourth book. Mm -hmm.
0: book. Yeah. So, like, and I swear I'm not just soft spotting Carmen because she is the only person who doesn't end up romantically paired off at the end. But because somebody... Of her plots revolve around her relationships with other people so like, you've got her relationships with her mom her dad her mom's boyfriend her real friends her fake friends her step siblings the people she meets on a train like you know these movies are about the world's the girls going into the world and their worlds getting bigger because your worlds do get bigger your world does get bigger as you grow but Carmen is the only one who actually feels like her world is getting bigger as the novels go on and so I love Carmen's development
1: I agree. And I I actually wrote down when I was kind of taking notes during my reread, I wrote down this line about Carmen where it said she depended too much on her context to know herself. She kind of talks about how her friends and her mother, um, her family, like serve as these mirrors and kind of without them, she struggles to know who she is. So she, you know, when she goes to college she's really fumbling in a way that she never has been before because she's missing these things that serve as her the foundation of her identity and that's something I found really relatable because when I was that age I had a really hard time like knowing what to do myself with myself when I was alone because so much of who I was similarly hinged on like being with my friends or like being with whatever boy was in my orbit at the time and so that was like something I had to learn in college. And now I like love being by myself. I have a ton of hobbies that I pursue alone. It's not a problem for me anymore. But that particular struggle for Carmen and in the fact that in the right context, she's this super bubbly, super confident person and in others just kind of loses herself. I thought that was really relatable for me personally, and very realistic for a girl of that age. And so to see her step into a path that took her a minute to find, but eventually she realized she could hold her own, like as an actress, I think is like a cool storyline for her
0: the other thing that i feel like they kind of drop a little bit because i really love that at the beginning of the fifth novel she meets with her dad and her dad has become this kind of withdrawn sad sack um i also love that her dad is played by bradley whitford in the uh in the movies i love bradley whitford everything he's in he and he just seems like a nice man um he's good
1: in that but, role too the, those two actors yeah. together like him and america Ferrera, like i think were really good i was i liked that dynamic in the movie
0: they, yeah, and then to see that, like, you know, 10 years later, he has, you know, lost his second wife, and he's just this kind of shy, withdrawn man, I wish, like, they, they dangle that, and then they don't come back to that. I'm like, oh, I want more of Carmen and her dad. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also Bridget, so, and yes, I have a soft spot for Bridget, because, like, and I don't normally like headcanoning and projecting things onto people, but Bridget is bipolar, She is absolutely bipolar, and I can say that as a bipolar person. Now, I am bipolar too, and I don't mean bipolar as well. I mean bipolar type 2, which is more swinging toward depressive episodes. And I think Bridget would, I think most people would say bipolar 1, but like, you know, no, the novel does not actually say the word bipolar. Um, but like, even with what it talks about her mother, and she refers to her mother having episodes, and everything that you find out about her mother in the uh, in the second novel, like her, it's one of the most accurate des- descriptions of undiagnosed bipolar disorder in a young person. So. um and I don't think I quite understood or appreciated the depth of Bee's trauma as a as a child. And that's why I think her plot in the second book is probably my favorite that she goes through, because her learning about her mother and their similarities and the way we inherit mental illness from others, the way trauma compounds. Um, I also really love, a, you know, talking about characters that they kind of don't know what to do with by the end, but the character of her brother, Perry, wish we got a little more of him. Like, I do like that in the time skip, we see that he's now more extroverted and stable and happy, but... I wish we saw more about how mm-hmm. he became this way, but, like, that's mm-hmm. also why, like, I, in a way, don't have a problem with the Eric plot in that, like, I think it's a good way to demonstrate Bridget's recklessness. I just also think there should have been consequences or a more accurate spelling out of why this was wrong. Mm-hmm.
1: I also think that it it is sad to me that Eric and Bridget are still together in, like, the 10 years forward time leap, and it's clear that Eric has never recognized, like... This woman that I really love maybe would benefit from some support from maybe seeing a therapist, maybe seeing a counselor. Like he never advocates for that for her. Or if he does, we don't hear about it, which like maybe that could have been a redemption arc that would have made me hate him like a little bit less. But I'm like this poor woman 10 years later still has not gotten any sort of support or has not been taught any kind of tools and i'm like and Mark, and what in are you the
2: doing? <laughs> yeah. in the
0: fifth novel she seems to be in the worst shape in which she's ever been like yeah big time, big time she's kind of like not working a real job and just kind of hanging out and like so doesn't want to commit to things that she doesn't even want to put her mm-hmm. mattress in a bed frame and yeah. again like i can relate to that all incredibly incredibly well but mm-hmm. um that and I, and it would seem from what I've looked at on the internet, I and a lot of others have a huge problem with the Bridget pregnancy plot, mainly because of some of the language used. um, It comes across as very anti-choice. Just the way, like when she says like, how could she think of doing that? And it's like, you, and you know what? I am pro-choice, meaning I am pro-choosing to get an abortion. I am pro-choosing to not get an abortion. But just some of the ways that like, that her choosing to keep a pregnancy is regarded as a redemption. And especially, like you said, it's almost like a replacement for therapy. Like, oh, she has a Mm -hmm. purpose now, and she would have been such a monster if she had done this. No, actually, she probably being, you know, very, having very unaddressed mental illness and being functionally houseless would have been well within her right to do that, actually. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, I think I was, I was talking to my parents after we finished watching the first movie the other night, because in my rewatch, I forced my parents to watch it with me. And my mom made the observation, because they only now have seen the first movie. They don't know anything about the Bridget pregnancy plot. But my mom questioned whether Anne Brashears had some underlying feelings about, like, you know, sex before marriage is bad. And that's maybe the message she was kind of trying to send with the fact that all the girls had bad sexual experiences, and then also had some pro-life leanings in the way that Bridget's thing unfolded. So I kind of wonder if maybe we could find a, of a tenor in Anne Brasher's life that kind of affects those choices. I will say, I, I agree with you that I think that was a strange choice for that character, especially since... She went apparently 10, 15 years without ever having gotten any kind of like support or care. And then she gets pregnant. And it's like, well, this will just fix everything. But I will say that her relationship with baby Bailey, I really, really loved reading. <laughs> and I I will, if I had read that book when I was quite a bit younger, I don't know if I would have enjoyed that plot point. But being that I will soon have a child that age, like I found it like really fun to read. Um yeah, so I agree with you. I think that was an interesting plot point. I think the only thing that kind of redeems it for me is the fact that she does find a lot of meaning and joy and I think confidence in herself in how well she bonds with that little girl and how strong their relationship becomes. But I I I do think that all of my favorite Bridget plot points were the ones that didn't involve Eric at all. I loved when she was with her grandma and like her relationship with her grandma so amazing how it brought her back to life. She reconnected with that boy from her childhood that she had a good friendship with. I loved that whole thing in Turkey where she becomes so obsessed with the floor of that house. I just loved how she had this thing that she was so passionate about that was just hers and that it was just her and this discovery. There was something about that that I just loved for her that It could just be hers and not have to have this, like, and there was that whole thing with Peter, but it was really clear that Bridget's fascination with that floor was also independent of the thing with Peter. I just, like, loved all these, like, fun different plot points for her, and I just, I wish that, I wish we could have seen her, like, have a, kind of get the support she needed and come into her own in a way that felt a little more... A little more like her standing on her own and a little less like a baby will solve everything. You know what I mean? You know
0: what I mean? <laughs> a lot of people do tend to think that babies will solve everything. Yeah. Um yeah, yeah so uh really important question that we ask with all these episodes is like what is the modern equivalent and by modern i mean anything within the last 10 years um equivalent to this book series and it could be a single book or a single series now it's funny because throughout these episodes like um you know with a lot of the teen movies we've done we're like ah, oh, no one no one likes no one makes good teen movies anymore and then again this episode hasn't come out yet but with miracle we're just that was us realizing in real time oh my god sports movies aren't a thing anymore um it, you know, that save it for the episode, Brie. But um this this was more just the realization because there's a lot of young adult novels now. I'm like, oh my God, no one cares about jeans anymore. <laughs> like, I can't remember the Actually, I can't remember the last time I wore jeans. It was Friday. Like I'm still very much into But every time I wear jeans, especially when I'm in Toronto, I'm like, oh, I stick out like a sore thumb. No one's wearing jeans anymore.
1: No one's wearing jeans anymore. And no one is obsessed with these like jeans that make me look as skinny as possible anymore like oh you look so amazing in those they don't make your ass look so big it's like that's not people are like no i want a big ass that's the thing i want that's that's no one
0: cares about jeans hugging their curves anymore we all want jeans that make us look like the mario brothers
2: i know they want to be comfy
0: yes absolutely um i you know i noted like pre just pre-covid that i'm like huh the generation that's like Ten years younger than me, sure are dressing like Cosmo Kramer, and I love it. Um, That's but like, I love it. I, I'm looking at the most successful young adult novels of the last couple of years, and I actually think that it's it's a good thing that I'm not seeing as many novels like this. It probably is because again, like these novels. I mean, yes, Carmen is Latina, but these novels are still incredibly white. They are incredibly heterosexual. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm seeing a lot more from authors who might be underrepresented as well. Um, And there's so many stories focused on queer voices and BIPOC voices. But at the same time, as I went down, like, I specifically went and sought out young adult novels that feature these voices that also aren't solely about that. Like, I would say like, the you know, I know these were made into movies, but like the Love Simons and the Heartstoppers of the world that aren't about, like, they can have the identity, but it's not about their trauma. And I'm not trying to make it sound like, oh, you know, you're gay, but it's the least important thing about you. Because when you're a teenager, if you're gay, it probably is a very important thing about you. But it's just that not everything has to be heavy. And I would love to not have to tie these identities to heaviness. So I just want to see some of the novels that include, you know, people of color or disabled people or queer people or all three. Why not Um, having friends and partners and going on vacations and like the impact the impact of them being marginalized shouldn't be erased. Is that I just want more diversity in these lovely stories about friendship. Again, the Babysitter's Club did it, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I've been thinking about this for a couple of days, and I have yet to come up with a good answer for this question. I think partially because as much as I was really, really passionate about young adult literature when I was, like, in college and into my 20s, I don't read it as much anymore in this season of my life. So I'm kind of tapped out of that world, which is weird given how central it was to my identity for so long. But when you were talking about having this representation is stories in stories that aren't specifically about that person that person's that piece of their identity, um, the one book that came to mind that is like Barely tangentially related to this. It's not a young adult novel. It's not a girl gang novel. It's called A Lady for a Duke by Alexis Hall, who is one of my favorite authors. Alexis Hall is the funniest, one of the only authors in recent years who regularly makes me laugh out loud when I'm reading. So A Lady for a Duke is a romance novel set in like Regency London, where the two characters are a cis man and a trans woman. And Alexis Hall says that one of his goals in writing this book was to create a trans character and a story that's not just about that character being trans, like it's part of who they are, but that's not what the story is about. And it is so beautifully done. It's such a great book. It's so funny. It does have representation of like, um, there's a character who struggles with some disability. Of course we have a trans main character. It does a really good job of telling this like very real story while representing these other things and letting these characters have identities outside Of those things. So that's the only book that comes to mind for me, even though it is not at all an equivalent of Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Um, But yeah, I don't have an answer to this. I don't I don't know if if there is a book that is equivalent to this in the modern era. I am not aware of it.
0: Um, first of all, I will say, and this is like the third time that this, uh, series has come up on here, but I gotta shout out the Queen's Gambit for doing what I think like we just need to call casual trans casting, which is to say casting a trans person to either play a person who like appears to be cis or just like they're casting a trans person to just play a role um because the choir teacher in uh at the girls school in uh in the queen's gambit is played by a trans actress and you have to presume since it's a traditional catholic school in the 50s that her character is not supposed to be trans but i'm just like oh that's lovely that's nice um so i love uh, that yeah it
1: makes me happy yeah i didn't know that
0: you know what? I think somehow the Queen's Gambit has come up more than hockey on this podcast because the other thing I'm passionate wow. about that isn't hockey is chess. I love chess. Um so That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I was in a chess club when I was little and then I picked it back up with COVID and as it turns out I'm still really good at chess and I don't admit that I'm good at things often. <laughs> so
1: that's awesome my brother is really good at chess I he got really good at it and then started asking the family to play with him and then just would kick our asses over and over yeah. so maybe you and my brother need to play chess together because I'm terrible I have no I can kick anyone's ass at Scrabble but chess is outside of my my skill set and see
0: I'm not great at Scrabble <laughs> for being a word person <laughs> not great at it but uh so one novel yeah. that the. I, like you, have been really tapped out of young adult novels. However, the nice thing about it is, like, you can plow through a young adult novel in an afternoon, and I'm a notoriously slow reader. That's why, like, when I reread these books, it, it was audiobook town, baby. But um, mm-hmm. but uh, for, now Maggie knows this. Uh, readers or uh, listeners don't know this. Uh, if Ben is still alive when this comes out, <laughs> my cat Ben has been going through some health problems, and uh, he's he's on the men, but we've had to be, like, on him, uh, like, like crazy, just to make sure he's eating, and so like I'm barely leaving my house right now because I'm like spoiling and watching my cat like a hawk. Hey, this is Bree from the future. Spoiler alert: he died. So I'm just like, okay, I've got nothing to do. I might as well like plow through some young adult novels. Um, and there's one novel that is a very quick read. It's called Little Do We Know by Tamara Island Stone. Um, This one is kind of the opposite of what you said. It's not the diversity I was looking for, and it's much heavier than Sisterhood, but it is a really good example of a novel that explores the ways in which friendship is tested, the ways friendships change over time, the challenges. Um, But yeah, if anyone else has any recommendations for a cool girl posse book, I think we're both all ears.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I'd love to hear some suggestions of what people have read and loved.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're bringing back a beloved tradition, although I don't think we did a lightning round back when we did our office episode of Peak Show. So the lightning round, it's... Oh,
1: yeah, I don't think we did. No. All right. So I'm a lightning round virgin. I'm ready.
0: Yay. So uh, the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants lightning round, which girl of the core four do you identify with most closely? Hmm.
1: Probably Carmen. I don't have her kind of flair for the theatrical but the way that she kind of struggles to find herself in the context of just herself is something I found very relatable so yeah probably Carmen I do have a little Lena in me though
0: it has to be Bridget for me, um, mainly because of the way, like, for a long time, especially when I was in denial about my own illness, how much I did that was reckless and regrettable. Um, and I just all chalked this up to, no, I'm just being a normal teenager, you guys. That said, what I also have is Carmen's kind of uh, penchant for the um, passive aggressiveness um, of, like, being, like, holding really, like, big emotions inside instead of just confronting someone. That's where Bree Rohde lives, baby. Um, so... <laughs> Who and I guess I'm just going for the Core Four Girls. Who do you think was the best cast in the movies?
1: You know, I actually think I don't think this was Blake Lively's best performance, but other than that, I do actually think the Core Four Girls were all cast pretty well. I will say the scene that I personally found the most moving was the scene where Carmen confronts her dad on the phone. That's exactly I think that is what I was unbelievable say. bit of acting. It just is so It got me so hard in a way that no other scene did. And so for her performance in that scene, I'm going to say America Ferrera because she just blew me away with her acting in that scene
0: yeah i i also very much agree with america ferreira i think i think she is the best cast because so much of carmen is about what she's not saying and even though she's not the quiet one but it's about the things that she holds back because she doesn't want to have uncomfortable conversations and america ferreira is very good at kind of acting with her face and showing you that she's holding something back and stuff and you can see the angst kind of written across her face she seems like more polished than the other actors in that sense so who do you think was the worst cast and we can go with supporting cast here as well i have one opinion about the core four
1: yeah i don't i again i don't think this was blake lively's best performance i think appearance wise she does really look like bridget to me but i just the way she runs in this movie is so ridiculous i'm like no soccer player runs like that the one casting choice and i think this is less a casting choice than it was an acting choice that i didn't like i don't like how Ryan even though we only see him for like 30 seconds is portrayed more like a stoner almost and less just like a geek like he and of course in the second movie he is so hot I'm like Tibby you go like he's such a babe but I wish that like we would have gotten more of that like really sincere side of him because in that little brief piece we got he acts like a stoner. And I don't I don't have a problem with the actual casting. I just don't love like what they did with that character. So that was the one that I was kind of like, what?
0: Who is this? Brian is the one example I will always use of um, when people talk about like, you know, are there any examples of giving um, like a character in an adaptation a race lift when they quote unquote didn't have to? And I, specifically, one person even says no one ever makes a non-Asian character Asian if they don't have to i'm like uh actually they made brian asian actually um yeah but yeah yeah, leonardo nam is basically playing his character from the perfect score which is another movie no one saw um he is what's that guy oh that
1: actor is so funny i did not make the connection and he's the stoner of the perfect score a little bit for me yeah. He is hilarious in The Perfect Score. I haven't yeah. seen that movie in years. I will say... Okay, in, that, I love that.
0: In both movies, he is trying really, really hard to hold in that Australian accent. Oh, my gosh. He he gets better at it by the God. fourth movie. But uh, in both The Perfect Score and Traveling Pants, he is very not Australian. Uh or he's he's trying hard not to sound Australian. Um yeah. in the I
1: wonder f- if that's part of why that performance comes off as a little affected. But I yeah. Th- yeah, now that I know who that actor is, I like extra love him as a casting choice because he is like such a mega hottie He's so but, cute. Yeah, that would yeah. be my my thought. Of the core four though, who I want to hear your opinion about who you didn't like.
0: Well um they cast a girl who is very obviously not Greek and in a way I kinda can't blame them because I'm thinking who are prominent, like Greek or even Mediterranean American actresses of that age? There's not a lot. That's a really good
1: question. I don't know if there are any that I know of, anyway.
0: And like Alexis Bledel, it, who like you can't even really call her like a white, super white, white girl because she is Latina. Um, but she is very fair complexion. Um, I will say though that acting wise, she does capture Lena's energy very well. Like. As much as, yes, Mm -hmm. her ruining everything in Greece is very much a Rory Gilmore move. Like, she was best known for Rory at this time, and Lena is very much not Rory Gilmore. She is Mm -hmm. very different tonally, and I like that she plays her tentativeness that way. But yes, I I really can't get past, I'm like, you couldn't find someone who looked a little more olive in the complexion. Mm -hmm. Um, In the supporting cast... um, I really don't like that they chose Blythe Danner for um, Bridget's grandmother. And that was also a weird choice of, like, let's combine the plots from the second and third novel um, for Bridget's—that movie was all over the place. But, like, her grandmother is described as a plain, frumpy old woman, and I like that. And you go with Blythe Danner to play this, like, southern belle type, and I I mean, Blythe Danner is, is wonderful. She's a legend. She's beautiful. But it just doesn't. I it's that kind of like Hollywood urge to pretty everyone up, you know?
1: Yeah. It's like just let her be a grandma. She doesn't have to be glamorous to be an incredible character.
0: Absolutely. So, um, who's a character that they left out of the movies that you wish they kept in?
1: I I missed Effie in the first movie. I she comes back in the second movie, but I just love her in the first movie. She's such a great, like. opposing force to Lena yeah Foil. she's a great foiled thank you that's the word I was looking for and so I was really bummed not to see her in that first movie that was that's the one that I was like where's Effie
0: and it makes it so much more awkward to introduce her in the second movie like because it's like hey remember Effie she's been here the whole time um yeah yeah, because like you kind of for some reason
1: Lena went to Greece but Effie didn't go to Greece like that doesn't make any sense either that yeah that was weird
0: yeah, I I love Effie. Um I love that she kind of shows up almost like a trickster character like every novel just to fuck something up. Um for me, I uh it's another sibling. I really like Perry and I um like and, and even the fact that like Bridget is a twin and um like that becomes a non-factor when, as the books go on, you do see more about her very strained relationship with her family members and stuff. Um, I have this, (laughs) one of my friends sent me a TikTok the other day about like, when you are, like, past high school age, finding out that someone is a twin is the weirdest thing because it's like, what? I've never met this person. There's just, like, another you walking around. What the fuck? Um, my best friend There's is...
1: There's another half of you that I don't know? Like, what is
0: this? My best friend is a twin, but his twin lives in Hanoi, and so it's this weird thing of, like, one day I'm going to be walking down a street somewhere and I'm going to see you, and it's not going to make sense. I have I have oh. met his twin once, and we didn't get along, weirdly. <laughs>
1: that is
0: bizarre i attract a lot of twins like i know a weird amount of twins in my life and i'm convinced it's because i'm a gemini but yeah like there is such an (laughs) interesting dynamic about having a twin and especially like a twin whom you really don't understand or a sibling from whom like you have this great trauma with and i just think like I understand the cast couldn't be super stacked. They probably spent all their budget on the Greek shoots. But um, yeah, I, I like Perry. And I wish she could just could have seen more about, like, Bridget's family life is miserable. That's why she does all this crazy shit.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that scene where where she goes back to the house and is trying to revive both her brother and her father, I think is a really cool part of her story. And I don't think it's the same when it's just her dad, because I I think the the life path that she sees her brother going down is one that is common at that age. And I like watching her figure out how to revive him. So yeah, I agree with you. I think that was a missed opportunity to leave him out.
0: So of all the things big and small that happened to each of the girls throughout the five novels, what is the one thing that you have absolutely gone through yourself?
1: Um, I think the ones that stuck out for me was like I shared earlier about Carmen having a hard time figuring out who she was without the context of her friends. I think that is something that was really central to my like own coming of age, especially when I was in college. I also have to admit that just my ability to like nurse a crush way (laughs) past its expiration date is like the way Lena does is uh, tragically very on brand for who I was at that age. So those are the one, those are the two things that I was like, yeah, no, this is exactly who I was as a teenager. I see this.
0: Yeah. I mean, so aside from rushing into sexual relationships that I shouldn't have been in at 15, which was definitely like right out of the book of Brie, baby, except this person was not a legal adult, at least. But um, I would actually say that there's, even though I didn't think this plot was the strongest, Karma goes through something that I actually went through incredibly recently, um, which is always getting caught looking like a better person than I am because I don't think I'm a bad person, but I also just don't think of myself as an incredibly good person because I was raised to not think of myself highly. I was raised at like, you know, be humble in the way you you view yourself. Um, and there's this, um, I guess he's no longer new because he started in December, but this new guy at work who, first of all, was born in 1999. Just mm. just chew on that for a while. He's a working professional. He was born in 1999. Wow. I feel my back hurts um but like every (laughs) time of time every time we talk and I tell him stuff about myself like he's like oh like you're a really good person or like you know he sees me walking to work all the time he's like oh like you know it's cool that you like do all these active things and I'm like I keep getting caught looking like this very good and ambitious person when I'm actually like a lazy person whose life is barely together at times and stuff and and then I realized, like, I'm being too hard on myself because, like, I've been taught, like Carmen, I have been taught to always view myself very negatively. Um, and mm-hmm. that, like, maybe the person that people see you as is actually who you are, you know?
1: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I feel like that's such a, a unique plot point that I think that's very cool that you were able to relate to that. Yeah.
0: I, I didn't think I could until recently because, like I said, I think... I think it's more that I realized I am becoming the best version of myself, but I'm still convinced that I'm that, like, teenage fuck-up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, of all the things big and small to happen to each of the girls throughout the five novels, what's a—or, um or, like, what is an individual plot for that one of the girls has, any of the novels, that you think is just a total miss?
1: I guess the whole thing with Peter and Bridget, where she, like, hooks up with that guy at the dig, felt— Kind of lame to me just because it was like, so she went and had that amazing summer with her grandma, and then she just like learned nothing. Like, it just was weird to me that like she's kind of back in the same situation. And I like the fact that at the end of it, she recognizes, like, you know, he's the one who screwed up more than I did. She kind of is able to learn from it, but it felt kind of lazy to me to kind of just like do that with her again, especially when there were other things happening in her storyline, like her love for that floor, how she kind of manages to connect with the people whose remains she is finding i'm like those things are so much more interesting and fun to read about and like every time this guy came in and even as someone who at the, that age was like so obsessed with the romance elements and stuff i was like get this guy out of here we have already done this plot point with her it's insulting to think that she's learned nothing i just like didn't i didn't love that i just found that kind of frustrating
0: yeah um We've already talked about Bridget's uh third novel plot of her getting back together with Eric. I also just think mainly that doesn't just frustrate me because she gets back with Eric. It's also that she accomplishes nothing else in that in mm-hmm. that uh novel. I mean, there's the like yeah. yeah, it's it's not great. I do like weirdly a Bridget Eric plot that I do like is in the fourth one after she comes back when she gets Eric to meet her family. Like I think that, I'm like why couldn't we have got done more of that mm-hmm. um but then I will also say the Tibby pregnancy scare plot like it's just It's a plot that could have been avoided by Tibby just not being foolish um, and taking a damn test. It also just, again, feels like we're sticking Tibby on an island and not really having her interact with the other girls and stuff. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, who's a minor character? I also feel like pregnancy
1: Um, scare stuff, I just find myself increasingly impatient with because I, you know, having recently gotten pregnant on purpose myself and knowing how short your window is to make that happen and knowing people who have struggled. With infertility. I'm like, getting pregnant by accident is actually pretty difficult. And like, I get that she is a product of the American public school system, which means (laughs) that she probably never learned anything about the fact that like your fertile window is quite small and blah, blah, blah. But it just is like, why is this such a huge plot point that we lean on? And why do we use this to make sex so scary when? This is a pretty difficult thing to have happen. I just think it's like lazy storytelling at this point to be like, it's a pregnancy scare. It's like, do you know how weird those are? Like how unusual that is? So I agree with you. For several reasons, that whole thing was a miss for me. The fact that she's portrayed as this like really smart, quick thinking, resourceful character, but she won't go by a pregnancy test. When she lives in New York, there's like bodegas in every corner that would have one. It would not be hard to make this happen. I'm like, this was just like lazy storytelling.
0: Do non-New Yorker Americans call them bodegas?
1: I only know they're
0: called... I only know they're called bodega bodegas discourse. because I oh. have
1: watched like Gossip Girl and they're stuff, but bodega, I don't know. They're, they're not called bodegas okay. anywhere else in the country.
0: We call them that. corner stores yeah. here, even when but they're in But in New York, the they're corner. bodegas. They're, they're all corner stores That's here.
1: Convenience store is probably what we say, like in Ohio or, or around here. Yeah. So
0: who's a minor character that you wish you'd seen more of?
1: Greta, Bridget's grandma. I wish that we didn't just leave her in the second book and never bring her or that relationship back.
0: Yeah. She's like mentioned, but far too in passing. Um, I also feel like Paul, like throughout the first three books is built up as very important and even like kind of shows a bit of interest in Lena, but then it's that we hear more about how him and Carmen are really close, but we don't see any of it. Um, And then Krista especially is really tossed aside, but I think Paul's just a more interesting character. And so he's someone that I just wish like, Mm -hmm. again, I think Carmen's Carmen's plot in the fifth book is a little bit wasted because you hear so much about her very interesting life now, but like there's no... I, I don't know. You, I would like to see more of her dad in that book and more of Paul. Um, so if you had to write a version of this today for a 2023 audience and introduce some actual strong queer representation, who's one character that you would like to see take that title?
1: Okay. I've been thinking about this a lot. I had a long drive yesterday, so I thought about it on my whole drive. And I'm not just saying this because I hate Eric. I actually love this plot idea. So in my fan fiction version... The first two books proceed as they do as originally written. And then in the third book, Bridget goes to the soccer camp. She's such a hottie. Eric sees her and is like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get her back. She's 17 now. Now's my chance. Instead, he has to watch her fall in love with another one of the coaches and have her buy awakening with this like mega hottie Mia Hamm soccer babe. And the two of them, like, Fall in love and have this amazing relationship, and then if I really take it, like, go the distance with this plotline. I think, in my experience, members of the queer community tends to have an incredible compassion for and literacy in mental illness that you don't necessarily see in the general population. So, my vision is that. Her new, like, Mia Hamm mega hottie girlfriend has, like, a mom or a dad who is a therapist or a counselor or something and is able to recognize that Bridget needs some love and support and, like, encourages her in a supporting and affirming and accepting way to, like, get the help she needs. And then Bridget blossoms into someone who has all these tools to, like, manage her own mental health and has this beautiful relationship. And then they go on to be like these soccer stars together. And they have this whole initiative together where they like talk about mental health and fundraise for mental health. And I'm a 100% stealing this plot line from this gay hockey romance novel series I'm obsessed with right now. Where See, there you go. You do, do like exactly hockey. Exactly this. I do. I do. I love hockey in the context of gay hockey romance novels. That's, like, my, like, sweet spot with hockey. But that's my vision for Bridget, is that she just finds this, like, loving relationship that does not require, like, boys to affirm her. And she is with someone who actually loves her and sees her enough to be like, let's get you the help you need so that you can live your best life and... We can be like hot soccer stars together. That's my vision.
0: You know, there actually are uh, two female uh, hockey players uh, who had like recently ha- had a child together and stuff. So Aww. I think they're on Canada's women's Olympic team or maybe the US, but um, yeah. So there was a,
1: a meme that was bopping around Instagram for a while about these two. I don't remember if they were in high school or college, but one of the girls was like a kicker for the football team. And one of the cheerleaders was her girlfriend. And I'm like, okay, stop making Marvel make this movie. I have got to see this movie. It sounds amazing. I'm so yeah. So that's my my wish list is like buy Bridget and a movie about like a football cheerleader romance that's two women. Mm-hmm. That's what I want.
0: I would say I I really like your idea. I think your idea is much better than mine. Um, But I actually thought, and yes, I landed on her because she's the only one who doesn't end up with her first love by the end. But I thought Carmen would be an interesting choice because Carmen is also the only character that we see display some sort of um, faith and um that she and her mother are not necessarily devout but pretty loyal catholics and i mean and we i think both of us uh, you know from our own experience that like queerness and faith can absolutely coexist um you know i talk again the miracle episode hasn't gone live yet but i talk a lot in miracle about like growing up in church and like how i've kind of reconciled my faith with my politics and stuff um but i also think You know, like you keep saying about Carmen, like she doesn't know who she is when she's not attached to others. And like when she is untethered, she just kind of floats around. And she's one of those people you read this so much about later, later in life coming out stories that it takes them forever to realize that they are queer because they literally do not know how to express these feelings or who to express them to. And I think Carmen is kind of a candidate for that of like she did not even realize that this was an option Because she's not as great at, you know, going out on a limb without being pushed by others. And so that's the way I look at it. And that way she could tell Jones to just, you know, take a, uh, I don't know if this is an actual expression or just something my mom says, but go take a flying fuck at a rolling donut. Um.
1: (laughs) I like that way better than go take a hike. That's so good. Yeah, no, I agree. Carmen was the other one that when I was like thinking through all of these all the girls in terms of this question on my drive, she's the other one that I was like, I could, I like love a queer Carmen storyline. I couldn't like bring it to life the way I could Bridget, but I didn't have a, I didn't have someone I specifically wanted to be the victim of this, the way I did in Bridget's storyline. But I I agree with you. That's another one that I would love to see.
0: Yeah. Uh, So I think I already know your answer to this, but if you could go back in time and make sure one of these relationships doesn't go forward, just yeet it into the sun. Would it be uh, Bridget and Eric or Lena and Costas?
1: I'm sure everyone will be shocked to know that I would move heaven and earth to stop B and Eric in their tracks.
0: So I'm still going to go with Lena and Kosas with the caveat that I think the Bridget and Eric plotline is almost important to happen, but it needs to happen with some sort of acknowledgement that it shouldn't have happened. And they absolutely shouldn't get together at the at the end of it. Or if they do get together, there needs to be some sort of acknowledgment on Eric's part. He needs to play an active part in her recovery. But I think, like again, I understand why you write that from a development perspective. Uh, um, but for me, it's Lena and Kostos because I think <sighs> Kostos keeps Lena from growing. And Kostos, we're, we are told, like you said, we are told that this is a great romance. We are told that this is a beautiful love story. And I don't friggin' see it. And mm-hmm. her pining for Kosos keeps Lena from developing as a character and growing. And that, I'm just, I'm not into it.
1: Mm-hmm. That's fair. Yeah. So you can cut this part out, but did you want to go back and do this question about the piece of clothing that you would share with friends as a oh, teenager? I think we it.
0: Right. That. Yes. No. We're at number five. Perfect. So, okay. So if you were to share a piece of clothing with your friends when you were a teenager, what would it have been?
1: So being a. A teenage girl who grew up in the aughts, I think it would have to be like a layering tank top, like one that we all would <laughs> layer in our own unique way, like our own style. But given the fact that we were all wearing like 17 tank tops and four necklaces at any given time, I think it would have to be like a layering piece.
0: Yeah. For me, um, now it's funny because the um, clothing item that I am and always have been most passionate about is since I was a teenager, hats. Um, I'm surprised I'm not wearing a hat right now, except I'm inside. Um, But even inside, I wear a lot of hats. Um, The owner of the dance studio for which I work very accurately summed up as this is, she introduced me to someone said, this is Brie. She leaves a trail of hats everywhere she goes. Because I just That's like... for really cute, actually. <laughs> I leave hats everywhere. But here's the funny thing. You catch me dead before I put on a hat that has been on someone else's head. I think it's the most unhygienic mm-hmm. thing. Like, mm-hmm. I, I would share a straw with someone before i share a hat with someone, which I know is like, That's you know, so brushing up against unreasonable. Um, but I, I wore a lot of beanies in, in high school. Um, but also a thing that I would probably freak out less about sharing that I care about equally... I love a good fall jacket. I had a military jacket in high school that I really, really loved. um, And then I left it behind my door on a hook when my my family moved away. And I like to imagine that that coat, that that military jacket has had some adventures, uh, you know, and being passed along. I think uh, jackets are a real fun thing to pass between people because they don't... um, because, like, they don't have to fit you super snug to look really good on you. My favorite jacket that I have right now is the world's baggiest denim jacket. It makes me look like a cross between Freddie Mercury and Oscar the Grouch. And I know Oscar the Grouch doesn't wear a denim jacket, but, like, it has Oscar the Grouch vibes. I can't describe it any other way. Um, and, yeah, I I think jackets complement people's looks in such a way that I would share a jacket with my friends. Because also people need them at different oh, times. Yeah. Yeah,
1: Yeah. well, and I have a jacket that I inherited. My friend Lauren gave it to me when she was like cleaning out her closet and it fits us like totally differently, but like we both look great in it. I will say the funny thing about a hat, especially if it's a magic hat. My mother has had this lifelong battle where she just like, she'll say this. I'm not saying this to be rude. The gal's got a big head. She has a hard time finding hats that fit. So the idea of her having like a magic hat that like fits her and all her friends and their different size of heads, especially since like, My mom is a pastor and has this very strong, like, like, uber-liberal pastor girl gang. The idea of all of them, like, having a magic hat that they wear on their, like, social justice missions and when they're, like, preaching about things like, you know, um, queer acceptance and Black Lives Matter from the pulpit, like, I love that idea of, like, the magic traveling hat that fits my mom's like big head
0: and and a hat is a good thing to be magic i mean that's why magicians pull rabbits out of them um that's a really <laughs> that's good a point. point yeah so to conclude our thoughts on the sisterhood of the traveling pants we need to determine a couple things but let's say you're reading this for the first time in two, t- two t- thousand twenty three um in your 30s what are aspects of the novels like individually or as a series that you think have and have an age well and you know both socially writing styles etc
1: I think most of the plot lines that don't have to do with romantic entanglement are pretty good. I think all four of these characters are very realistic teenage girls. I think we see a really good range of kind of like normal everyday teenage girl problems as well as big life events that would be hard to process at that age. So I think that, I think all of those things hold up pretty well, um, A lot of the romantic storylines just don't really do it for me. I will say, apart from the whole pregnancy scare thing, I do like Tibby and Brian together. Brian to me is, Brian is to this series what, Harry is to Sex in the City. How he first comes out and you're like oh he's like the dorky one and then you realize he's like really awesome. So apart from the pregnancy scare thing I do really think the Brian storyline is a good one. The other thing that really didn't age well in this books is this weird kind of very, very mild undercurrent of commentary about weight and just kind of this assumption that everyone wants to be skinny. You don't want pants that make your butt look big. There's a few times where numbers are assigned to weight gain that make it sound like, oh, she gained X number of pounds. That's really bad. I think that did not age well. Thankfully, it's a minor enough part of the story that it doesn't like totally ruin it for me. But it came up often enough that I was like, I don't love this. I don't think Gen Z would tolerate this. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I think, my overall take on it. What about yeah. you?
0: Um, I agree with you about weight stuff. And I I also don't like, I mean, again, I understand it because she's an actress, but I don't like that in the end, Carmen becomes thin. Because like, you know, she is the one character who is, sup- who is bigger and that her curves are known to be beautiful. Um, but, and- naturally none of the other girls have gained weight that we know of and so like they're they're just all slim girls now um Mm -hmm. i will say a thing that i think both has and hasn't aged well is the addressing of bridget because on one hand like and again this is coming from someone whose favorite novel is speak uh who loves a good like problem novel as i think that's the term that they use um what a lot of bridget displays is classic textbook trauma response behavior and so i think like if you were to release this book today bridget would be the one that people have discourse about you know Mm -hmm. um so in that sense i think bridget's plot uh in the first book has aged incredibly well where i think it's aged incredibly poorly is how it develops after that how she you know again She doesn't seem to get help and her healing seems to come through things like, okay, like, and yes, you can get, you can absolutely get closure from learning more about your mother. You probably should also go to therapy. You absolutely can get closure from expanding your relationship with your extended family and deepening your relationship with your brother. You should probably still go to therapy, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and therapy is not magic either, but like, it's again, like, and then we have a baby that comes across and solves everything. So I think that even the most recent book, it's like that hasn't aged especially well because we would want to just like, Amber Shears clearly understands that Bridget is very traumatized. And so I think, and There are some people that seem to believe that, like, oh, Bridget is very clearly her favorite character. She handles her very delicately. And so I would like to think that if it were written today, she would just handle her a little bit more delicately. Um, Also, a thing that I think has... um, has aged pretty well is kind of the commentary on having immigrants as parents and what I also think is great is that the person they choose to be the like have the child of immigrants plot is not the Latino character it's it's um it's Lena um because just you know like Carmen already has baggage from like being a different race than her dad and stuff. And so you don't want to give her the stereotypical immigrant uh, plots. I like that they give it to Lena, but um, that's something that I think has aged incredibly well. And like the way we treat elderly people, the way like elderly people's um, independence is stripped away from them. That's a thing I think has actually like you could write that in 2023 and it would still be something that we need to talk more about.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think one of the Carmen moments that I really loved is the fact that she's the one who had the clarity and courage to speak up and say that Valia has to go back to Greece. Like, And I think that's pretty realistic that sometimes family is blind to the reality of a situation, like they could love you and want the best for you and just still not quite be able to pinpoint the solution. And I think that was such a cool moment that Carmen was the one who was like, this is what's got to happen. And then she confronts Lena's parents about it and she ends up affecting this incredible change. I think that was a really, really cool plot point and like such an amazing, I loved that for Carmen just getting to see her her do that. And even in the fifth book, like a lot of Lena's storyline in the fifth book, I thought was just such a throwaway, but the piece where she's the one who goes back to Greece to sell her grandparents' house. I'm like, what a realistic plot line for a family with aging members. Like, that, I think, was a really, really realistic... Like, this is something that adults have to figure out how to do. Who's going to go to grandma's house, clean it out, deal with all the stuff? Like, I think that's like... I'm like, okay, this is an adult plot line. We're no longer teenagers here.
0: Yeah, there was a really beautiful melancholy to that plot. And that's Mm -hmm. something that... I think like, I wish there had been more of in the fifth book because the fifth book is obviously like the least lighthearted. Um, but that was a really beautiful kind of quiet melancholy plot. Um, all right, Maggie. So thanks for being with us here on the I think it's actually the seventh episode. No, it's the sixth episode of Tales for the Rec Room. And if you want to get once again, plug uh, some of the things you've maybe written about recently or even not so recently, maybe some of the videos you've provided scripts for on TFD. Now's the time.
1: Yeah, if you want to hang out with me online, if you want to look at pictures of my cats, they're really cute. You'll want to find me on Instagram at Maggie Olson Taylor. Again, Olson is spelled O-L-S-O-N, so not like Mary-Kate and Ashley. Um, My most recent script over at TFD that I was really proud of was about Ozempic and the use of weight loss drugs and how that affects people of privilege versus people who actually need those things. If you are actually in need of a technical writer or a ghost writer, please come find me on Instagram. I never look at my website. Um, Trust me when I say no topic is too technical or too weird. So if you genuinely need a writer, please come hire me. But if you just want to see pictures of whatever quilt I'm working on right now you can also find that content over on the gram
0: the quilt stuff is fascinating my mamere is a quilter and so I just find it all very comforting um I don't know if people in the in the U.S. Midwest call grandmothers mamere at all um but because I know you have French Canadian family correct
1: I do we my grandfather's all, my my maternal grandfather is almost entirely French Canadian, but the French side of that did not come down at all. Oh, okay, His so you wouldn't call him has, has, No, the French really didn't come through. He that he was also part Native American. He's from the Anishinaabe tribe, so that kind of penetrated the family culture much more. But I do love that little MaMère like piece of Quebecois in Canada. Yes. I love it. Love it.
0: We're actually, uh, this is like my little trivia thing, we're actually not Quebecois, we're Franco-Ontarian. And it's like, if you oh. if people think that Quebecois French is a bastardization of French French, wait till you hear Franco-Ontarian, baby. <laughs> like,
1: I need to look that worst. up. I didn't even know that was a French culture in Canada. I have never heard of such a thing, and now I'm going to Google it so hard
0: usually like the the northeastern kind of quadrant of uh ontario is much more french and that's where all my family is from as well as the ottawa valley is quite french um and then of course you have new brunswick french which is very different but yeah Yeah, i'm from uh from we'll say yucky fringlish canada So as for me, I've been your yucky Fringlish host, Brie Rohde. You can find me uh, on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy. And I'm on Blue Sky now at prune Tracy, no spaces or underscores or anything, dot Sky. dot social. Uh, you can also follow this podcast on Twitter at Rec room Tales. New episodes are coming out every Thursday this summer. You can join us back in the Rec Room next week. Our old friends uh, Frederick Blickard and Mint Marcellus just might stop by to discuss the movie Juno. Take it easy and thank you for listening.